We come now to our sermon passage this morning, and we're just looking at the first three verses of John chapter 14. I was going to do a much bigger reading. As you can see, it says 14, 1 through 3, 15, 1 through 17. And I quickly realized I had bitten off way more than I could chew, and we would be here about two hours. And so I will get to chapter 15 next week. <laughs> but this morning we're looking at John chapter 14, 1 through 3, as we're continuing in our sermon series here in the Gospel of John. So um, it's printed for you in your bulletin if you want to open your Bible or turn on your Bible app. John 14, 1 through 3, this is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going, to prepare, going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that in this world that you reveal yourself to us, that you use the words of scripture to show us who you are and what you're about. And so you show us who we are in you. So in these moments, as we attend to what Jesus said to his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, these words of comfort, that you would comfort our hearts that you would open the eyes of our hearts to not just see words on a page or see things that are true, but to see our gospel that belongs to us by faith. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. From one angle, if you think about it, Scripture tells the story of one grand building project. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it tells the story of one big building project that God is doing. It's the God who is love creating a place to dwell with us, human beings, creatures that are uniquely made to receive his love and live within it. God is making a home for us with him. It begins in Genesis 1. You look at Genesis 1, you'll see the picture of God bringing order and fullness. He acts like an architect king in a sense. He speaks and things happen and he is creating according to his wisdom. There's no light. He says, let there be light and there's light. He builds all these, uh, <laughs> he creates the seas and the skies and the earth and then he populates them with birds, with fish, with animals and human beings. And he puts human beings in Genesis 2 in this royal garden. That's what Eden is. This royal garden with him as king. This place where he will commune with his creatures. He puts human beings there as gardeners to care for it. And he gives them a mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And in that way, human beings kind of become his partners or uh, human beings become his subcontractors. They're tasked with the work of taking this garden, Eden, this what was really actually a pretty small place in the grand scale of things as far as the size of the earth, taking Eden and expanding it. This place where God communes with humanity, taking it from this small place to be something that covers the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the building project and it's underway. Now, you don't have to read past the third chapter of Genesis fact, you don't need to know much scripture at all to know that this has not happened. Sin has disrupted and marred this work. The subs have gone 
uh, a little wild. The subcontractors have gone off plan. Hank's laughing because he deals with subs every day. Um, the subcontractors have gone off, off task. And we still, as human beings, we still are fruitful and multiply in a sense, but it's a fruitfulness that only comes with toil and pain. Um, we still fill the earth, but more often than not, we fill the earth with violence. In fact, if you read the first nine chapters of Genesis, it says that as human beings spread across the world, they fill the earth with violence. We still build, but more often than not, we build monuments to our own stubbornness and selfishness. We build to make a name for ourselves. We should be receiving our name from God and who He says we are. But as you see in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we build to our own stubbornness to make a name for ourselves. That's all to say this building project that God had started has gone way off course and way over budget. But here's the good news, friends, is that God has not given up on this building project. He has not given up on making a home for us with Him. And so God again begins to build in Genesis, but not on humanity and their failure. He begins to build on His promise. It begins with one man and his family, Abraham who was the first but not the last to receive this promise that is repeated dozens of times in Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the core of what God is doing throughout Scripture. Now what that looks like changes over time. I'm kind of doing an overview of the whole Bible here, so... Uh, but what this changes, what looks like changes over time. When God's people are rescued from slavery in Egypt, the children of Israel, they're a traveling nation. They live in tents. And so what does God do? He gives them a blueprint for a tent. He's telling them, you dwell in tents, so do I. I dwell on my, where my people are. And so God lives symbolically in this tent, the tabernacle, as they travel. Years and years later, when they are settled in the promised land, when they have peace from enemies on every side, and they're living in stone buildings now, God allows a temple to be built in Jerusalem, a more permanent and solid structure, right? And it's telling them the same thing. You guys live in stone buildings, so do I. I live how and where my people do. God's also telling them something else. The place where the temple is, Jerusalem, is going to be ground zero for what God's doing. It's going to be the place where his promise is most obvious. So all of that is background. That's all Old Testament background to Jesus. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, we read it in John chapter 1 many moons ago when we were in John chapter 1. And it says that God, God's Son, the Word, put on flesh to dwell among us. Put on flesh to dwell among his people. That word, put on flesh to dwell, dwell, is actually the word tabernacle. That Jesus is tabernacled among his people. God not only dwells with his people like his people do, he has come to earth to dwell with them as one of them. That's what the tabernacle was pointing forward to in the first place. In John chapter 2, Jesus says that he, in fact, is the true temple that the temple was pointing toward. That he is the place where heaven and earth meet. And it is in Jerusalem what happens. Jesus is executed. But it is also in Jerusalem where Jesus rises from the dead. 
And so this place where God had, in the Old Testament, said he put his name is the place where God's new creation begins. Where Jesus is raised from the dead. And God dwells with his people as one of them. And in his death and his resurrection, he has removed every obstacle obstacle that keeps the great building project from going forward. That's why after his resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples a mission that in language sounds a whole lot like be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. He is, he is recommissioning this building project. Now, it's going to look a lot different, maybe, than it did for Adam and Eve, but that's what's going on. Jesus has removed the obstacles from the building project of him making a home for his people where they will dwell with him. And he empowers them to be fruitful and multiply. He makes us, as 1 Peter says, into living stones. We're in this building. Or as it speaks of in Ephesians 2, we just read a minute ago, we are being built together by God's Spirit into a temple where God dwells. Not, we're not you know, literally on top of each other brick and mortar. It's a, it's a metaphor, but we are built together and bonded together by God into a place where people can look and say, that's where God dwells. He dwells with and within them. And how does Scripture end? If you flip to the end, Revelation 21 and 22, we see the great building project that began in Genesis 1 completed. The Apostle John, in this great vision, he sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to come to earth. It's a city built by God, a place for him to live among his people in a new heaven's and new earth. And the good news of this is it's God dwelling not like He does with us now. It's in a world completely made new that is free from the presence and the effects of sin. The end was planned from the beginning. That's what I'm getting at. That the story of Scripture is one of a great building project. And all of this that I just said was in the back of Jesus' head as He was speaking in John 14, giving comfort to His disciples. So let's talk a little bit more about specifically what Jesus says in John 14. He speaks of his father's house. And this sermon's called A House Becomes a Home. So Jesus speaks about his father's house here in this passage. And, and I want to say before I dive in too much that God doesn't need a house. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but God's not a physical being. He doesn't need somewhere to rest or keep his stuff. He doesn't need shelter from storms. He doesn't need a house. His great building project, as I said earlier from the very beginning, was creating a home for us with Him, where He will dwell with us in a way fitted for us, that we can live in His love and He communicates with us this being beyond our comprehension in a way that we can understand. And so what does Jesus say about His Father's house? It has many rooms, many rooms. The picture is like an ancient home. Back in the day, many generations would live in one house. When a, when a family, when a son was married off, they'd all move in. They'd just build another room onto the house. And so it was kind of ramshackle. But these ancient homes were big. Multiple generations lived there. And that's what uh, the image it's kind of hitting at is saying. It's not uh, so much God has a subdivision. There's some old translations like King James Version says that 
in my father's house, there's many mansions. Um, the picture isn't like God has a subdivision and we each get a tract of land and we can build our big house on it. The picture is more God has a house and you have a room in it. It's not a subdivision where you have a tract of land. It's a father's home and we all have a place. And Jesus speaks here of preparing a place for us in this room. And what he's speaking about is his crucifixion and resurrection. His cross and his tomb is preparing the Father's house. Because it's the way the door is open to the Father's house for us. He goes and he removes every barrier that stands in the way of us coming home. Sin stands in the way. Jesus takes it from us. Sin stands in the way. Jesus wears our sin and experiences the justice of God against sin so that there is no more wrath to pour out on us. That we might not live in fear that there's a sin down the road that has more power than the, God, the grace of God. We live by faith and Jesus has removed this barrier for us to come home. Death stands in the way. Jesus experienced it. He gutted it of His power. And revealed that for all who trust in God, death always leads to resurrection. Death always leads to new life. All these barriers. There is no barrier that Jesus will not tear down to bring us home. In the Old Testament, it spoke of the temple as the Father's house. If you, you've ever read, uh, there's different psalms that talk about uh, going to the Father's house. It's speaking in terms of the temple in Jerusalem as God's house. And they spoke of it that way for a reason. It was the symbolic place where God lived among His people. But it's worth noting that that temple, no matter how grand and how impressive of a building it was, nobody else lived there. Nobody lived in the temple except for God, symbolically. No one else lived there. There were priests that lived nearby, and they probably bragged to everybody else like, Two doors down from the temple. Be impressed. But nobody else lived there. The priests did their work and they went home. And the temple wasn't as massive as we usually think about it. Uh, there's not an exact correlation. It talks about cubits. We don't know exactly how big an ancient cubit was in our modern like feet and inches. But the temple was anywhere from 2,700 square feet to 4,000 square feet. That's about the size of your average McDonald's. That's about how big God's temple was in Jerusalem. So it's not a massive building. There's not room enough for everybody. It was glorious, but it's not a home for God and all His children. People would say they loved the temple. People would even say their lives were centered around the temple. Or maybe, again, that they lived near it. But nobody could say, come meet me at home and be talking about the temple. If the temple was God's palace, they were merely subjects who were allowed to come and visit on occasion and then leave. Jesus is telling us in this passage, he's telling his disciples that they no longer need to think of God as a distant king who will sometimes do good things for them. No longer think of him as a king that they sometimes visit his palace, he visits with them, and then they go home. What Jesus is saying here is we can call him Father, and know that wherever He is, His home is our home. That God is making room for us with Him. 
And Jesus can say this because in truth, he is everything that the temple pointed to all along. Jesus is God and humanity joined together. Not just meeting in a moment inside of a building, but he is forever a person in whom God and humanity meets. And that means that everything that happens to him has uh, uh, implications for us. That in Jesus, God has broken into human history, into our broken world as one of us. For that reason, we don't need a temple today. We don't need to go to Jerusalem to find the Temple Mount and, and dig out a patch of land and build another thing. Jesus is our temple. He is the place the temple pointed to all along. So Jesus is telling them that the Father's house is our home, and he's opened the door for us to come home. But he also says more. Look at verse 3 again. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. This is a promise from Jesus himself that he has not only opened the door for us to come home, but that he will ensure that every single one of his people will make it through that door. That he will not only open the door, I've opened the door, good luck, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I hope you find it. It's I'm going to prepare a place and I will come back to ensure you make it home. That is what Jesus is saying. Friends, what happens when we die? It's one of the uh, you know, perennial questions of human existence. What happens when we die? As Christians, what happens when we die? Friends, there's not a single moment where we are left. There's not a single moment of question. We are received immediately into the presence of God in a way that we have not yet known. We are freed from pain that we've carried here. We are freed from struggles and we are received by the God who loves us. Now, there's much mystery here. I can't spell out to you the physics of this or any of that. I don't have the answers on what all this looks like. And I can't conceive, and neither can you, of a life lived outside of our bodies. It feels strange, right? The idea of a life lived outside of our, our bodies. But I think there's a reason for that. We can't conceive of that because as human beings we are physical and spiritual. That's part of who we are. We aren't spiritual beings trapped inside of a body. We are physical and spiritual at the same time. And that's why I feel the need to say this, that heaven, as wonderful as a place as it is, heaven as we usually talk about it, as the place we go to be with God when we die, is not our ultimate home. It's not our final destination. It's wonderful. It's glorious beyond all description. But the promise of Scripture is that that is not our permanent home. God's not simply building a spiritual building in a sense. He is making all things new. The picture of a new heavens and a new earth is not just a spiritual reality. The picture of the new heavens and new earth that we see in Scripture, in Revelation 21 and 22, is a very physical place. Because God will make all things new. Not just our hearts, not just spiritually where we're received to Him, but all things new. He will remove the curse and His blessings will flow. We sing this in joy to the world every Christmas. His blessings will flow as far as the curse of sin is found. And for that reason, what we tend to think of as heaven, I said this already, is a temporary place. So when Jesus speaks here of returning to take us to where He is, when we die now, yes, we ascend to heaven. But He's not just speaking about that. He's speaking about a time when He will return to make all things new. When the new city, uh, the new Jerusalem descends from the sky and we see a world made new, free of pain, free of suffering, free of death. 
we will see this happen. He will return, and as I said at the beginning, this building project of God making a home for us where we live with Him for our good will be complete in a new heavens and new earth. In other words, Jesus is not abandoning his building project. It is not God started in Genesis 1 with this grand idea, and it went sideways, and he said, okay, I'm going to do a plan B. I'll just receive him to heaven, and that'll be good enough. No, God is committed to what he said at the very beginning. He is committed. He is committed to seeing the power of sin overturned in its fullness. Our bodies, and this is where it has application for us. There's so much temptation throughout Christian history, and so many theologians have gone off base on this. They treat our bodies like they're bad things. Our bodies are bad. Our spirits are good, but our bodies are, in a sense, evil. And we need to cast off our bodies to experience the fullness of what God has for us. But our bodies are not evil things. Our physical world is a good thing that has been marred and misshapen by sin. It has been uh, torn apart by the effects of sin. But it is not a bad thing. And because it is something that has been marred by sin, it is something that will be healed by Jesus. Because it is something that has been marred by sin, it is something that will be healed by Jesus. So when we think of eternity, the picture is not so much that like picture of us becoming angels one day and we're sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's a caricature, maybe unfair. But, you know, we think of heaven and we think this ethereal thing and all the music's, oh, it's like, I don't know. For some reason, it's all like 7th century Gregorian chant um, when you get to heaven. Um, but that's not so much the picture in Scripture. The new heavens, new earth is a world very much like ours now, but it's one freed from the effects and even the very presence of sin. It's free from pain, sickness, sorrow, death, and suffering. It's free from depression and anxiety. A place where God's building project is complete and all His lost children are home. All of us. A place where the darkness that covers this world like a cloud has been driven out. And the encouragement for us this morning and what I'm saying is that no matter what we face in life by faith in Jesus, there is not a pathway we will go down that does not lead to this. There is not a diagnosis in your future that does not lead to this. There is not a trouble you will face down the road that does not lead to the new heavens and new earth. That doesn't justify how difficult the path is going to be. I'm not trying to let God off the hook for the tough things that we face. We can still be angry in the midst of stuff. We can still be sorrowful at things that are worth being sorrowful for. But God gives us this hope. That there is no path that we take that does not lead to this. And friends, I have no idea what this will be like. I heard somebody say one time, like, is when I lived in Orlando. It's like, the new heavens and new earth will be driving down uh, I-4 with no potholes and traffic. And, you know, I doubt there's going to be cars. kind of hope not. I like cars well enough. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> but I don't know what this will look like. But the picture, Scripture gives us a number of images. And the, the picture is an overarching delight joy. My favorite one is the picture of this feast where we feast in abundance at God's expense. And uh, 
one where we are, we, what we are made for is seen in all its fullness, where the love of God is everything. It's our all. That's why I think one of Scripture's most prominent pictures is the feast. In fact, I want to read this passage. I don't have it printed in the bulletin. I usually do that. Sorry. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. It says, On this mountain, Jerusalem, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's a picture of God preparing this banquet and God going from face to to face, from person to person, wiping away tears. Friends, there is a day that you and I will sit across from each other in absolute unbelievable delight because we are marveling at how God has redeemed every bit of us. A day when the, the things that we have uh, uh, sown in sorrow and tears, we will reap with joy and we will laugh at how we are redeemed where we will watch those of us who uh, struggle through life free. A day when our broken bodies will be renewed, when those who cannot now will dance and jump and leap and run, and we will say, look at that. A day when the poor who have wondered where their next meal will come from will never have that worry again. A day when funeral homes and hospitals are put out of business. Thank God for them. They do worthy and fantastic work. But there's a day when their services will no longer be needed. A day when we are home. When we are redeemed and healed in body and soul. Where we will take deep breaths of freedom and not feel guilt, anxiety, or fear, or regret. But what about now? In close, what about now? If it's this is, this is the good news of the future and just wait and see, hold on until it gets here, I'm fine with that. That sounds so great that I'll just hold on and wait for it to happen. But that's not all Jesus leaves us with. He's at work right here, right now. New Testament is filled with these descriptions I've already talked about that we together are a kind of temple that God inhabits by His Spirit as we're joined together. God is building us together with one another. As we wait for the ultimate and final home in the new heavens and new earth, God is joining us together in our local churches like little temples that dwell uh, that He dwells with and within us together. And within this community, or if you go somewhere else in, in your uh, local church, as unimpressive as we may seem, God is at work. And He doesn't want to live somewhere else. He's not looking for a better neighborhood, so to speak. At its best, the church is a place where we receive a foretaste of the future. It's almost like a, you know, an architect will, will give blueprints, but they'll often, if it's a bigger building, build a model of it so you can see what the finished product's going to look like, at least conceptually. That's what the local church is supposed to be, a foretaste of the future, 
a little model where people can look at and get an indication like, oh, okay, it's going to be much grander than that. But right there, I get a glimpse, a glimpse of what the new heavens and new earth are like. So when we come together in those moments when the truth of, gospel, of the gospel washes over us and our cares and concerns, if only for a moment, fade away, that is a foretaste of your ex- emotional experience in the new heavens and new earth. Those moments when we come to the Lord's table and we take these tiny, tiny bites and these tiny, tiny sips building within us an appetite for this grand feast. The times when we truly connect with one another, without competition, without hostility in the church. When we love one another without asking for uh, a resume, this is a foretaste of what it means to be joined together and reconciled to people without the things that usually divide us. The times when our voices join together in a song in a way that rings out and inspires our hearts. These are all foretastes. These are all models. To say it another way, this is kind of our mission springing from what Jesus speaks of here. To say it another way, in the church, we are created to embody hope for one another. We are reminding each other of this hope and how we speak to one another, how we speak to one another, how we speak about others, and how we treat one another, and how we walk with one another in burdens and in joys. And in all of this, God is continuing His work of building, that building project that will not end until His grace has flowed as far as the curse is found. So know this morning, in the Father's house, there is room for you. He has made it sure. And He has flung that door open wide through Jesus Christ. And He has ensured that you will make it home. Feel that now. And in this life, know you will know the God who builds as you are built together with your sisters and brothers in Christ. In death, you will know the God who builds as you're received home to Him and not for a moment alone and in eternity. In the new heavens and new earth, you will know this God who builds as you see his great building project completed and feast and joy. That said, let's pray. Father, I thank you that though uh, the darkness of sin just covers this world like a blanket. And as I joked earlier, that the subcontractors have gone way off plan, that you are not... uh, Uh, dissuaded from your plan that you are continuing to build not on our unfaithfulness but on your faithfulness on your promise that you make a home for us with you for our good I thank you for the hope of the new heavens and new earth I pray Lord as we live in this time where we long to see that we long to see it all things made new that you would comfort us, that you would bind us together with each other, that you would make this church a beautiful model and reflection and foretaste of what you're up to. Do that here, God, by your Spirit, not for our glory, for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom. pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.